This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3 the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving weekend and are ready and rested to go once more again into the thick of things with me here in the hut. Phone number is uh, 888-900-3393 if you'd like to call in. I couldn't really believe it over the weekend as I was reading up on stuff. I thought maybe a promise that I had made to myself and really one I had made to you as well, um, wasn't necessarily true. And that was, well, at least the election will be over, right? Before the votes were cast, the day of or the day before, probably both, I said, you know, this is going to be over soon, everybody. We've got that going for us. And now we see that, well, it's over, but some people don't want to believe that it is in fact over. There is the distinct possibility of a recount happening here, or rather there is a recount in, underway that's going to happen in a few states if Jill Stein gets her way. Jill Stein being the, the Green Party candidate, which you would think, you look into the Green Party a little bit, you think, well, she's probably just like a, like a cool hippie who just wants to protect Mother Earth and everything is chill. It's all good, man. But then you learn more. And actually, no, she's kind of a, a green fascist. She's really an authoritarian using the environment as the thin end of the wedge to just then get into every aspect of your life and, and dictate it all under the, under the guise of trying to protect the planet. So Jill Stein, unlike even Bernie Sanders, nothing charming or nothing appealing about what she stands for or, quite honestly, uh, whom she is, from what I can gather here. But she's raising this money for a recount. Now, she got a, a tiny fraction of the vote. Uh, but we'll get into those numbers in a second because they are kind of interesting. I just wanted to take a moment to step back, though, if I could, to point out that uh, there was a lot of talk, and it was not long ago, there was much discussion about how Donald Trump was not going to accept the results of the election. This was something that was repeated ad nauseum in the media, in fact, there were even some moments in the debates where this came up. This is what Donald. This is how Donald Trump responded to the "Will you accept 
the election results uh, during one of the debates. And then I think we have a little bit of Hillary's response too. play clip one. You will absolutely accept the result of this election. I will look at it at the time. I'm not looking at anything now. I'll look at it at the time. What I've seen, what I've seen is so bad. First of all, the media is so dishonest and so corrupt and the pile on is so amazing. The New York Times actually wrote an article about it that they don't even care. It's so dishonest and they've poisoned the minds of the voters. But unfortunately for them, I think the voters are seeing through it. There is a tradition in this country, in fact, one of the prides of this country, is the peaceful transition of power and that no matter how hard fought a campaign is, that at the end of the campaign, that the loser concedes to the winner. Not saying that you're necessarily going to be the loser or the winner, but that the loser concedes to the winner and that the country comes together in part for the good of the country. The country comes together. Are you together, saying you're not says. prepared now to condemn that principle? What I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. Well, okay? Chris, let me respond to that because that's oh, horrifying. horrifying. You know, every time Donald thinks things are not going in his direction, he claims whatever it is is rigged against him. Uh, the FBI conducted a year-long investigation okay. into my email. Hold on, hold on. So there, Hillary says it's, it's horrifying. I love it when her, uh, her her charmlessness just needs no further explanation from me. She says that this is terror or horrifying, and yet what we've heard from the media ever since Trump won, and I'll talk about a couple of these things today, th- are all these theories about how the system is rigged and how Hillary was effectively cheated, right? It was uh, Hillary herself, and this was just sore loser, sour grapes, um, Nonsense. Hillary herself said that she thought that James Comey was the reason she lost the election. James Comey, the FBI director, cleared her before Election Day, just brought up that they had found new emails. If he had suppressed that information, wouldn't that have just been obviously something done in Hillary's favor? So he refrained. And here we are being told that essentially um, Hillary thinks or rather people around Hillary. I'll get into some of the, the who, the what and the why. That there was uh, the possibility of voter fraud. Now, this is fascinating because you hear from the left all the time that there's no such thing as voter fraud. They'll say that. I mean, I could play you sound bites of this. There's no such thing as voter fraud. And then when you'll point out, well, so-and-so went to jail for voter fraud, or look at this instance of voter fraud, or President Lyndon Johnson probably wouldn't have been president had it not been for obvious, blatant voter fraud. Then they say, okay, well, it exists, but it's not a big deal. It's always exaggerated. You've seen the entire script flipped here. And people with no trace of irony and with no sense of the hypocrisy that they're putting on display, they turn around, they look at everybody, and they say, well, because Trump won, now we have a different set of rules. Because Trump won, the standard that we were going to apply before no longer applies. You will remember intrepid journalists. Oh, they're so brave. They're so just brilliant, fascinating. Uh, saying things like, oh, here we've got Jake Tapper with his debate analysis. What was the most important moment of that? I think I forget if it was the first, the second debate. The most important moment of the entire debate, according to Mr. Tapper, was play clip two. One of the things that's important about these events is what comes out of them that will be given a lot of oxygen and a lot of attention over the next week. 
Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I thought Donald Trump, he, he got some punches in uh, rhetorically uh, and, and when it came to especially criticizing the Clinton Foundation, when it came to uh, criticizing Obama and Clinton foreign yes. policy. But I think the headline out of this debate is he refuses to say that he will concede uh, if he loses uh, necessarily. He says he's going to keep us all in suspense. That's the headline. He, ref- he refuses to concede. He may refuse to concede. He- Remember, he hadn't even lost yet. This was, and then this became a thing that just got bounced around in the media echo chamber for a while. This was Trump undermining democracy itself. This was Donald Trump as somebody who was a threat to the very essence of the republic. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? So upsetting. MSNBC, of course, right? An extension of the Obama White House, MSNBC. It's like the uh, which is interesting because for a while they were doing really well with that. And then everyone just got sick of it. And they figured, why do we, why watch MSNBC? Why not just go to WhiteHouse.gov? It's the same thing. It doesn't, the talking points are the same. The nonsense is the same. The sort of uh, complete puff piece coverage of the administration obviously is the same. So there's really no reason to go to MSNBC when you could just go to WhiteHouse.gov and see what the Obama administration wants to tell you. Uh, but for but they tried to do what they could to protect, of course, the Democratic Party, Obama's legacy, and just the the general assistance they can provide to the left and so msnbc asked trump uh, or rather asked if trump would accept the election results play clip three on election day will you accept the outcome of this election will donald trump absent evidence of wrongdoing of irregularities and voter fraud of course we'll accept it and by the way he has said that if he wins he'll be the president of all americans she thinks tens of millions of them are deplorable and irredeemable he'll be the president of people who didn't support him and don't much care for him and and by the way we will accept i certainly will accept the election result if in fact there are no irregularities or voter fraud if the, if the election results are very clear um but but look i do think if you're donald trump and you're just trying to get even one-tenth of the coverage, the positive coverage that Hillary Clinton gets, it's very frustrating. I can tell you as a campaign manager, Kristen, if we had a level playing field, if we had like a semi-tilted okay, so She's transitioning in, into other things. But she has to answer that question, too. I do think it's fascinating. Here we are. And the narrative leading up to Hillary's election from the major media outlets out there was Trump won't accept the results. He's lying about uh, the prospect of voter fraud. And now it's... Oh, fake news gave Trump the win. Fake, quote, fake news. And you look at what qualifies as fake news, and I'm like, do do you mean the Huffington Post? What's fake news exactly? Oh, no, news sites created in Russia or Belarus or wherever um, that pump the Internet full of stories that are very viral and shareable. That gave the, I mean, did, did that give Trump the win in the primaries too? We're really to believe that, that was the difference maker that in districts in uh, in counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, which were the difference in this election, by the way. And it was a really when you look at it, it was a pretty, uh, pretty small margin overall in terms of the number of votes that uh, separated victory and defeat. Uh, Mrs. Clinton lost the three states that she would have needed to win. Um, she lost them by a little more than 100,000 votes leading to her defeat in the Electoral College. Oh, and by the way, the Electoral College also no longer something people, or I shouldn't say people, no longer something the elite media believes in. So what's the, why should I listen to a state? Why should the state of New York be able to tax me? Why should the state, if the state has no representative authority that is equivalent to other states, right, if it's just based on population centers, then there's, 
There's no reason for people to listen to what the state of, I don't know, Wyoming has to say. Because it's just going to be completely outvoted and outdone all the time. It has no real voice at all in D.C. California gets to tell Wyoming what to do always and all the time. There is no, I mean, remember, there's, of course, the House of Representatives is apportioned along population lines, but there's no parity whatsoever between these states. But this is something that a few weeks ago you would have been told, yeah, Electoral College, very important, bulwark of, bulwark of our republic, really uh, good stuff, nice work, high five, Finding Fathers. Hillary loses, and it's, oh my gosh, he, he, this time, and Al Gore, and it's all so upsetting. It's all so upsetting. So now we get to the point where they're just, the mask is totally coming off here, the hypocrisy mask. Although it's actually just more pathetic than anything else, you with the recount request, Jill Stein is raising money. Who knows how much of the money is really even going to go to this recount versus just Jill Stein going around talking about you know how you, you should not be able to have like running water in your home because it's going to kill all the you know kill all the plant life or something whatever. Uh, she's raising money for this, and they're going to have a recount. And the Clinton campaign put out some completely bizarre. Uh, tepid statement on this whole thing saying that uh, that they do not believe that there were because they had quote seen no actionable evidence of vote hacking that might taint the results or otherwise provide new grounds for challenging Donald Trump's victory but it was going along with the recount effort to assure supporters that it was doing everything possible to verify that hacking by Russia or other irregularities had not affected the results the only way that Russia I, I read the analysis by the way of the political science or I'm sorry computer science uh, professor, we should just call it politics and not political science discussion for another time. But as a political science major, nothing scientific about it. Even when they bust out regression analysis and try to put numbers on things, it's nonsense. Politics. That's what I studied. That's what people in political science are studying. Um, but I read the computer science professor that came up with this theory that has led to the Clinton campaign being like, yeah, we'll be a part. We'll go along with this recount, too. We'll I don't know if they're going to contribute money or but they're attaching their name to it officially in one way or another. Um, and you got you think to yourself, okay, how exactly would this have been? All under the guise that this might have been hacked by Russia. Keep in mind, there were news stories in the weeks up to the election. Again, what we were told then doesn't count anymore because Donald Trump won. So now everything is different. Now reality is upside down. They're not connected to the Internet. So how do you, how do you, how do you hack stuff? That's not connected to the Internet. Well, this professor, this analysis, well, you'd have to have zip drives or, or thumb drives that Russian operatives uh, plugged into the machines. And they would have had to do this, by the way, only in like certain states that were close anyway. Right. That doing this in California wouldn't have meant anything or obviously didn't mean anything because Hillary won. They would have had to known beforehand what the battleground states were, which even the American press and American political scientists and political watchers uh, didn't think, you know, Pennsylvania wasn't supposed to even be a swing state, according to, I think it was David Plouffe, former senior Obama advisor. So the Russians would have had to essentially know the result, know where the election results were going before it happened, be better than any of the polling that we saw, and get operatives into specific machines to change what what are we talking about in total here 100,000 votes make it a razor thin margin of victory in a way that completely aligns i should say with the only real path to victory that trump had based on white middle uh, white working class voters coming out for him having nothing to do with russia 
But I mean, just this is crazy when you actually think about it. I mean, what, what are the chances? The Russians got into a few. Ele- I mean, this is the level of insanity we're talking about. Here. The Russians, remember, they can't hack from the internet. So this is different. They say, "Oh, look at the DNC hack. Yeah, that's email hacking. We know that can happen." But to hack the machines, the actual machines on election day, you'd need people physically present, inserting thumb drives, putting malware in there. The malware would have to remain undiscovered. Yeah, okay, fine. Is anyone looking for the malware in these things? Probably not, but. Somebody really there was a guy named Oleg who was like must put the thumb drive in the backside of this thing in order to make the No, I don't think so. He was like don't tell anybody. We're throwing the now I'm sounding like Count Chocula. We're throwing the US election. It's insane. It's pathetic, isn't it? I mean this is like the whiniest, wimpiest stuff you could imagine. Clinton campaign, just just not letting it go. No dignity. Remember what I've always said to you about how the Clintons have no integrity to protect, so they're capable of anything? The Clinton campaign has no dignity to protect at this point, so why not just attach themselves to green commie Jill Stein's recount effort? Media is just going to let this thing go because they know, wow, it's almost sad if it's not so funny and annoying. We'll go into a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Phone lines are open 888-900-3393. I just want to take a moment here to uh, thank our sponsor for this half hour, Yankee Hill Machine. If you go to YHM.net, you'll see their full line of products. They design, develop, and manufacture some of the best firearms and accessories you'll find anywhere on the market. And they do it all right here in the U.S. They've got their factory up in Massachusetts. These are gun guys. They believe strongly in the Second Amendment. They really care about what they do. And when you go online to YHM.net and check out their full line of products, hey, Christmas is coming up, everybody. Um, So is Buck's birthday, side note. You can see exactly what I'm talking about. And right now I'm just looking at the Nitro 30 uh, stainless, which is one of the suppressors that they feature. Uh, They've got a dropped price on this one right now, a particularly good deal on the Nitro 30, which is the YHM answer to the demands of today's suppressor community. It uh, handles the needs of both professional operators and suppressor enthusiasts on the firing range. Check out the YHM Nitro 30 in stainless. YHM.net, Yankee Hill Machine, YHM.net. Meyer, or Meyer, I think, maybe Mayer. Is it Mayer or Meyer? Mayer. Mayer, as in John. All right, cool. What's up? Hey, so uh, first of all, I just wanted to say, every time you say the Yankee Hill Machine uh, commercial, I get jealous. I'm from New Jersey. I can't exactly use a silencer. Yeah, and there are some states, unfortunately, where it's it's an issue. That's why, uh, again, like, you know, Second Amendment, you got to see what the deal is in your home state. But if you're in a state where you can have one, it's definitely doable. Yeah. Now, I also wanted to point out that um, this these fake news, a lot of the websites that are on these lists are um, conservative sites. I, I, I heard that The Blaze was on it although I just double-checked and I couldn't find it, but I also found Breitbart and the Daily Wire on these on this uh, well, list. When you say on the list, uh, is there like an official fake news list that's out there? I haven't seen that. I've just seen people yeah, talking about uh, 
from a, uh, from a professor at Merrimack College in Massachusetts, uh, like a media professor. She made a, a list of the websites. Um, I, I, uh, I, I don't really know much more about it. I'll, I don't have the information offhand. I'll, I'll check it out. I heard it. Yeah, it's Merrimack College, uh, professor, uh, assistant media professor there, I believe. That's what okay. it is. I'll I'll look at this list. I I didn't know that there was you know I, I doubt that there's such a thing as an official list, but I hear what you're saying. This might have gotten a lot of attention. I'll take a look. Uh, Mayor in New Jersey, good to talk to you, my man. Thank you for calling in. Phones are open eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. Also, Facebook dot com slash Buck Sexy. Like to say hi, talk to me a bit about the show. We can definitely do that. And with that, my friends, I bid you give me a couple of minutes here to drink a little coffee and get ready for the next segment, which is going to be. Phenomenal, obviously. Um, we'll talk a bit more about... I want to talk about the Green Party and Jill Stein for a second, just just because. Then we'll get into Castro's death, and we got a lot of show today, everybody. So, as I'm fond of saying, strap in. The Freedom Hut's rocking. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. 888-900-3393 if you want to call in. we got Brad in the great state of North Carolina on the line. What's up, Brad? How you doing today, Buck? Nice to talk to you. You too, sir. Listen, I'm, uh, I've never worked on voting machines directly, but I am a CISSP, which is a certified information system security professional. And I can tell you that uh, just to drive a little bit bigger stake through the heart of that dopey argument about the thumb drives, um, any ser- uh, secure system – would have all external ports, especially USB ports, uh, locked down as a standard protocol so that, uh, you know, nobody could just walk up with a thumb drive and plug it in and, uh, you know, download malware or, you know, access the internals of the system. It just it doesn't happen, Um, you know, unless, of course, there was some kind of man in the middle attack that, uh, you know, they had inside help, and then that's, you know, ratcheting the whole, you know, uh, 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 spy uh, um, ar- 
argument up to a complete different I mean, level. I, I'm, I'm so. here. I can put this on. In fact, I'll have uh, producer Amy throw this up on Facebook so people can see it. Uh, J. Alex Halderman, he's the guy that's gotten, from what I understand, the most attention for this whole voting machines were hacked argument. He's a professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan. And I read through his whole mm. thing. And, I mean, look, I'm a former CAA guy, so I, I know something about running uh, espionage and, uh, you know, direct action is what the Soviets would call it. You know, we would have we would have other mm-hmm. other kinder, gentler names for it. Um, but covert <laughs> action, uh, doing something to upset the election results or to, to upend the election results of another country, that would be a highly sensitive operation. And the, the remember, we're not this isn't, oh, maybe they there was one voting machine and no one's paid attention to it, or, or, or there's one way to get into all the voting machines. No, the argument that's made here that leads to the Jill Stein recount is that the Russians theoretically, remember, it's all theoretical, there's zero proof of any of this, the Russians mm-hmm. maybe got access to each individual machine somehow, put a very precise malware on it that wouldn't erase all votes, would just sort of change the tallies to a certain level so Trump comes ahead, would do this without being caught, would do this on U.S. soil in numerous places. Remember, one Russian agent gets caught doing this and the whole country freaks out, right? So so mm-hmm. does this in multiple places, in key states, in swing states that Russia had to know beforehand were going to be the close call. It's just insane. I mean, it, there's no way. There's no... But uh, they'll they'll take that argument seriously, but illegal aliens showing up to a voting booth where they don't have to show ID and can just vote, and there's zero chance that anyone's going to try to track anything down uh, and and bring anybody you know to justice for this, that they think is crazy, right? That 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 argument should be thrown out the window. But the uh, the FSB engaged in one of the most daring and uh, uh, one of the most unbelievable es- uh, espionage operations in the history of the modern world. Yeah, maybe that happened. Maybe that's why Hillary lost. Uh, you got to love this stuff. I love the mirth in your voice as you're talking about this. Thank you. Well, it's, it's it's actually the stuff of a great, like a great spy novel. But I, I'm actually not even sure it would be believable. Uh, so that's why that's why it gets it gets hard enough. But yeah, I know, Brad. You're totally right. They're, what they're they're going to allow people to just walk up there and hey, I'm just going to stick my thumb drive in the voting machine and take all the results because I feel like there's no way. Yeah. I saw this by the way. There's there's a room full of people there. It's it's not like you have some some special private area where you get to vote. There are people all around. I mean, they can basically see who you're voting for, uh, and it's, there's cops there. Anyway, it's just uh, you know, yeah. I, I just I'm picturing the guys in balaclavas coming through you know the skylight on a on a on a fast rope, and it's just no, <laughs> I don't see it happening. But I'm glad somebody with an actual tech background agrees with me. It's just it's just nonsense. Uh, but Brad, thank you yeah. from North Carolina, man. Shields high. Good good to talk to you. Yeah, shields high, brother. Shields on. Uh, <laughs> it's really good stuff. You've got to look at this. Uh, you've got to check it out. I'll, we'll have uh, pr- producer Amy, please uh, make it so. I'll, I'll send you the piece on on Medium, and uh, people can can put it up, and that would be great. I it's you can't make this stuff up. I also wanted to look into. Oh wait, I, I didn't give you the, the differentials in the votes, by the way, because I thought this was this is kind of one of the under reported stories of the election, I would think. Uh, or maybe I just feel that way because we, we did talk here a fair amount about third-party candidates. I had the Gary Johnson peeps come on. I agree with them on the weed legalization. I wish that instead of Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, they had actual libertarians on the ticket. They had sort of 
uh, sort of wimpy liberals on the ticket instead, um, which was not a good plan. And the the what is Aleppo moment is was the worst, including everything that Trump said, I think was the most jaw dropping moment of the entire 2016 presidential election cycle. What is Aleppo? I, I still couldn't believe that he said that on national TV. It was especially at that point in time, because Aleppo had been on the front page of every newspaper day in and day out for a few months because it was closed off. There was a humanitarian crisis. People were worried there's going to be starvation. I mean, it was real. And plus, daily barrel bombs being dropped by Assad regime forces. It was a disaster. And what is Aleppo? I just still and I don't sort of you know, at this point, I'm not trying to dance on his campaign's grave. I'm not trying to be mean about it, but it was wow. And Bill Weld and uh, and Gary Johnson seemed way too or at least Bill Weld way too favorable towards Hillary Clinton uh, for somebody to be claiming that their first their first and foremost consideration is liberty. So with that all said, you had Gil, uh, Gil Johnson, Jill Stein, not to be confused with Gary Johnson or Jill Johnson, uh, in Wisconsin. Now, these were the key states to this election. And if you hadn't already seen this, I just wanted to share this with you. It's really interesting that on Jill Stein's website right now, she has hashtag recount 2016. That's at the top of the website. So this is now her thing. Her thing is a recount. Maybe she should stay away from this because when you look at how this election went down, when you understand what the vote tallies and totals were, you begin to see something that is very interesting. Wisconsin, key state, thought it was going to go or people thought it was going to go. The consensus was that it would go Democrat. It went for Trump. Overall Trump margin of victory in the state of Wisconsin, 27,257 votes. Less than 30,000 votes. I mean, that's a that's a pretty small indoor sports arena. You know, that's like Madison Square. It's even, actually, that's bigger than Madison Square Garden. But that's, you know, you fit, I know in Michigan State Stadium, I think it is, right? You can fit 100,000 people. I mean, Less than a sports stadium full of people just decided the difference in Wisconsin. 27,000 votes. Jill Stein in the state of Wisconsin. And I, will, I would love to sit down and talk to these people because we're going to have some fun. Make, we're going to have some fun making fun of Jill Stein in just a few minutes. Jill Stein got a vote total of 51. I'm sorry, 30,980. So Trump won by 27,000 votes. Jill Stein Got 30,000 votes. I just want to put this out there. How many of you think that a vote for that if somebody's going to vote for Jill Stein, their second choice, or if they had to, if they didn't have Jill Stein as the option and they were going to vote, which is also a question, but assuming they were going to vote anyway, pretty sure they would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Pretty sure that the climate change catastrophists on the left would have gone with Hillary, who at least pays lip service to climate change catastrophe. Although, as we know, She'll pay lip service to anything if the price is right. I cannot wait to see what the total 2017 Clinton Foundation donations are, as well as also what the speech fees are. If it's really about charity, everybody, and if it's really what, quote, the market will bear with the Clintons, there should be a minimal drop off from what it was in the year or two before the election. If she was selling her office, if she was selling at least the appearance of access, if this was blatant and outright corruption. Oh, well, then we'll know. That will be fun. Although the media, of course, won't, won't cover that. We won't get a chance to talk about that. All right, so Wisconsin. Oh, and Gary Johnson got 106,000 there. So Trump, 27,000 margin of victory. Jill Stein gets 30,000. Gary Johnson gets 106,000. So 
razor thin margin there. And if you don't have third party candidates, who knows? But Wisconsin could have gone another way. Michigan, Trump margin of victory, 13,107 votes, 13,000 votes. Jill Stein vote total, 51,427. Gary Johnson vote total, 172,726. You have over 200,000 third-party candidate votes cast in Michigan, and Trump won by 13,000 votes. Stein and Johnson aren't in the game. Maybe Michigan goes for Hillary. Pennsylvania, overall Trump margin of victory, 71,794. Jill Stein vote total, 48,657. Gary Johnson vote total, 142,334. Again, the third-party candidates got well over the margin of victory vote total for Trump. And you look at 50,000 50, votes for Jill Stein go for Hillary in Pennsylvania, and a third of Gary Johnson votes go for Hillary, let's just say. I mean, whether that would happen or not, we could debate and argue. She wins Pennsylvania. Uh, the third party, this is, these are in the key states. These are the deciding states. Florida, overall Trump margin of victory, 119,489. Jill Stein, vote total, 64,000. Gary Johnson, 206,000 votes in Florida. So while Jill Stein is doing this whole thing where she's raising money, what you're seeing is that it's highlighting third party candidates may have been the difference maker in these states. We'll never really know. We can't know. We can't do the experiment in reverse or we can't go back in time and redo this as much as I know some Democrats want to. But recount 2016, as Jill Stein has on her site, uh, I don't think people are going to look at this and think to themselves, I'm so glad that we had that Green Party. I don't think stalwart Democrats are going to see this and think to themselves, I'm so glad we had that Green Party candidate. She really did great stuff. Nope. No, she did not. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. We've got Hannah on the line calling in from New York. Hannah, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thanks for calling. Hey, how are you? What's up? What's up? I'm good. Um, so um, I'm a college student, and I love your show. By the way, I think it's awesome. Thank I've you. Can I, how do you hear about the show? Oh, I, I listen to Glenn and stuff. So I okay. decided to give you a shot one day, and then I've been listening ever since. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Shields high. So what's on your mind? Okay, so um, I'm a college freshman, and um, I'm in sociology. And that class, man, I just, every time I go in, I'm like, how am I paying for this? I mean, it's a mandatory class. I have to take it, but every time it just drives me crazy. But um, anyway, so my professor starts talking about, this is like the day after the election or something. He starts talking about how black people are in danger. He's very liberal. He's almost like a fan of Karl Marx. It's unbearable and he and i raised my hand i said you know because someone else had said something why do we have to talk about race so much and i raised my hand i was just like yeah well let's not talk the more we talk about it it's just giving racist racism like a platform and i said you know why don't we do it the mlk way which is judge someone 
color of their, I mean, their character, not the color of their skin. And this kid turns around and he says, you know, you're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. And then this girl raises her voice at me. She goes, you have no right to tell people they can't be scared. Trump is a racist. And she starts yelling at me. And I'm, I'm 17. I said, I didn't vote for Trump. She's like, yeah, you just said you did. And I was like, no, I didn't. I, I really didn't like Trump that much. And they start raising their voices at me. And they were... And, I, I and the professor didn't do. The professor didn't intercede. I mean, you're in a classroom setting, and you're getting yelled at, and people are obviously doing this in a threatening manner. The professor just sits there like a wimp, doing nothing. Nothing. He actually went up to somebody in the front row of my class and whispered something to her, and they started like laughing at me. And I was oh just my gosh. blown away. I just stopped talking, and I couldn't believe how emotional all of the arguments were. And it really like freaked me out a little bit. I, I totally understand that. I, I took a class at Amherst in sociology called The American Right, and it was just a parody. I mean, it was a parody of the right. The whole thing was exactly what you would expect. It was like uh, having a professor who was just reading from the Daily Kos and, uh, you know, uh, The Nation every day. And I got in a huge fight, although there were a couple of kids in the class who were much more shy than I was, and they would kind of sit around. They would sit around me. It was sort of like a little conservative (laughs) gang in this auditorium classroom. And I would just pick fights with a professor because he would just say stuff that was... That was uh, so close-minded and and just sort of nasty and wrong. So that's the problem with sociology. I mean, sociology is largely has largely become a, a discipline, a college discipline created specifically for the purpose of proving all collectivist and leftist belief to be true. So that's really Absolutely. what it is. It's the study of why the left and Democrats are right. It's not really actually a sign. The ology in it should be eliminated because it is not the study of. It is not a scientific pursuit in any real context. Um, but as I always say, Hannah, don't let them give you bad grades. You can fight You can fight with people in the class, but do what you have to do because I don't want you getting bad grades and then not getting the job you want. Uh, do you have any conservatives? Oh, I am so careful. Oh, you know, it's funny that you said that because there are some kids who sit around me who – will not raise their hand for anything and they and they start like just sitting around me that's really weird that that happened to you too yeah well there you go see there <laughs> this is the way that these things happen they're 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 flocking to you for your your intellectual the the ages of your intellectual protection can give them some sense of comfort so that's very good uh hannah great to have a uh, great to have a, a, a caller from uh from the campus side of things uh shields high thank you very much and please spread the word about the show thank you so much goodbye great to talk to you uh, phone line still open, 888-900-3393. I did want to talk a little. We will get into the whole Castro thing. It's fascinating. I kind of wanted to finish up, though, on the um, the denormalizing, I'll take their word, of Trump and the whole Jill Stein recount thing and some other nonsense that we'll have some fun with. Other stories out there, too. we got a lot to hit on today. Hour two is already here. We'll have a great guest at the bottom of the hour. Our friend Charles Cook with his amazing British accent and other people. More coming. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut Hour Two. Already upon us, show is flying by today. Really appreciate you joining. Uh, also, I'm going to start the campaign early. 
Uh, all I want for Christmas is you to share the show with a friend. It's free. They can download it, listen whenever they want. That is that is all I want for Christmas is you and your friends to listen. So there you go. So please do. You can go on SoundCloud.com. You can go on uh, iTunes. Type in Buck Sexton. It's right there. Download it. Bam. Good to go. Okay. With that said, big news over the weekend. Castro's dead. Fidel, not Raul, unfortunately. Uh, it's a shame they're both not gone. Um, but they uh, they announced that Castro was, was dead over the weekend, and this got a lot of of course all of a sudden, of course, the the Twitter sphere and the commentariat and the the chattering class of which I suppose I'm a part, and I chatter for three hours a day, so I do a lot of chattering. Uh, everybody went nuts about Castro's death because it really just turns into a, an opportunity to show whether you are on issues of geopolitics, foreign policy, history, um, a, a brainwashed imbecile of the left or not. And so a lot of people take the opportunity to not only show that they uh, understand the history and know why Castro is such a bad guy and why we've had the policies that we've had, uh, but to mock the incredible stupidity that is very widespread when it comes to Castro and those like Castro, I mean, or Castro and his supporters and those who would go and, and wear. I think it was Colin Kaepernick who took, he's, he's famous now more for taking a knee during the national anthem than for playing football, uh, or most famous, I should say, for his taking a knee this season. Uh, and he also was approached by a sports reporter, I shouldn't say approached, uh, asked by a sports reporter, I think it was on a conference call, how it is that he could talk about oppression and human rights and yet show up in a public a public forum wearing a Malcolm X uh, shaking Castro's hand T-shirt. And it turned into quite a contentious exchange between the sports reporter and Kaepernick. He's just the latest of many who wear either Castro gear, even more, uh, more prominent, of course, is uh, Ernesto Che Guevara, uh, Che meaning dude, uh, people call him Che. I'm like, that's not his name, but I guess we all have to call him Dude. The Dude abides. Uh, people wear Che Guevara t-shirts and have no idea what he stood for or, or whom he was. You watch the Motorcycle Diaries uh, with uh, that very sort of charismatic, uh, good-looking, uh, I think he's a South American actor. He might actually be, I forget, he's from Latin America, playing uh, Guevara. And it's almost like a, a Jesus story. I mean, it's he just wants to heal the sick and the poor and the Motorcycle Diaries. Entertaining until it leaves out the whole part about Guevara being a part of execution squads and just being a bloodthirsty, uh, murderous tyrant right alongside his buddy Castro and trying to start trying to spread the virus that overtook Cuba under the Castro regime to as many countries as he possibly could. Trying to, to start the same sort of nonsense in South American countries. So had he been successful, he would have imprisoned and impoverished uh, countless millions of people. And yet you'll see college campus kids walking around wearing uh, Che T-shirts and and think themselves wise in the process. It's an embarrassment, but they're too stupid to be embarrassed by it. Well, this weekend, a lot of people embarrassed themselves when it came to Castro. Um, you can start with, uh, you can start with, well, we'll get into Trudeau eulogies in a minute because they're amazing. Uh President Obama had a statement on Castro, and this was classic. Uh, Obama's statement on Castro was the sort of uh, wimpy, 
middle ground, a sort of pathetic non-statement that you would expect from somebody who clearly has some degree of affinity for Marxist revolutionary causes, right? Anti-colonial causes, if you want to take Dinesh D'Souza's thesis that Obama is deeply influenced by the uh, the anti-colonial framework for geopolitics, that's then a part of, or that then would, would influence how he views Castro, who, keep in mind, wasn't content to just destroy Cuba, wasn't content to try to use Cuba as the actual launch pad, literal launch pad for a nuclear war with the United States, where we live. I mean, how many millions? I mean, it would have just it could have destroyed the world. This um, lying, bloodthirsty, incompetent, economic illiterate, skirt chasing, philandering maniac almost destroyed the world. And you have idiots out there who act like this guy is uh, someone that we should celebrate in his passing. And I don't just mean random Twitter trolls. I mean heads of state. I mean people with real platforms. I mean individuals who are supposed to take a much more responsible view or a much more or take a much more responsible position and have a much more informed view of the world than they clearly do. We'll get to uh, the charming, if you're a lady who likes him, I think he's just such an idiot I can't even imagine. Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, in a few. I'm just holding on to this one. We'll get to it in a few. Uh, But first, I want to start with President Obama and his statement on Castro's passing. He says, we extend a hand of friendship to the Cuban people. We know that this moment fills Cubans with powerful emotions, recalling the countless ways in which Fidel Castro altered the course of individual lives, families, and of the Cuban nation. History will record and judge the enormous impact of this singular figure of the people on the uh, on the people and world around him. Yeah. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. He definitely had an impact. Say what you will about Stalin definitely, quote, altered the course of individual lives in a big way. Say what you will about Pol Pot, about Mugabe, about. Yeah, I'll say it. Hitler. I just, you know, with Hitler, anytime you go to Hitler in the argument, it feels like you're taking the easy way out. But in this case, I think it's uh, it's called for. Um, He's not quite as bad as Hitler. I'm not saying that he's not quite as bad as Stalin in terms of the number killed and, and the methodology. But in terms of his ideology, his suppression of dissent, his willingness to kill people for have people killed, I should say, not even like he's doing it himself uh, for disagreeing with him. Very similar. I mean, totalitarianisms all have certain traits that cross over. The the, the scale of the brutality uh, varies, and there are, of course, idiosyncrasies of the despot who is in charge. And, and of course, his inner circle, because it's almost never one supreme supreme leader without a a core of uh, cronies and enablers around him, and it's almost always a him. Uh, it's usually a sort of there's the number one, but then there's also those that that person has co-opted into being part of the tyranny and the evil. So uh, Obama's statement is just so weak and so wimpy. And I, I, of course, it's influenced by the fact that he's done this opening to Cuba without requiring anything from the Cuban position, without the Cubans having to meet halfway or even a tenth of the way. He just makes concessions and says this will make things better. And 
Yeah, that's it. That's what he does. And now he says that Castro altered lives. You could say that again. Definitely altered some lives. Um, You look then at Donald Trump's statement. Trump, who is not a, uh, well, uh, is not somebody that is an expert on global affairs, I think we could obviously all say. Um, He's not somebody that we would look to and we would think to ourselves, all right, he understands in a deep way the history of Cuba, but he has a much better grasp of it than Barack Obama does. Um, when you look at his, uh, when you look at his, first of all, Fidel Castro is dead, exclamation point. He puts that on Twitter. Um, and then when you look at his official statement on it, he was much more, uh, much more accurate and honest and forthright than Obama was. No question. He says Trump uh, had a lengthier statement in which he called Castro, this is in the Washington Post, a brutal dictator who oppressed his own people for nearly six decades and he hoped Castro's death gave Cuban-Americans the hope of one day seeing a free Cuba. This is from Donald Trump, everybody. Fidel Castro's legacy is one of firing squads, theft, unimaginable suffering, poverty, and the denial of fundamental human rights. While Cuba remains a totalitarian island, it is my hope that today marks a move away from the horrors endured for too long and toward a future in which the wonderful Cuban people have finally will finally live in the freedom they so richly deserve. Though the tragedies, deaths, and pain caused by Fidel Castro cannot be erased, our administration will do all it can to ensure the Cuban people can finally begin their journey toward prosperity and liberty. That's a statement on Castro. That's real. That's honest. That shows an understanding of just what a monster this guy was. You would think the left would have a problem with somebody who imprisons and tortures uh, gay people for being gay, as Castro did. You'd think that would bother them a lot. Nah, not so much. Or at least they don't think about it. They'd rather talk about the free health care, which was terrible, by the way, and still is. They'd rather talk about the school system, which has produced what exactly in terms of advances that the rest of the world benefits from? You know, you can really look at a country and see how many how many Nobel Prizes in the hard sciences have been awarded in recent years to somebody from X or Y or Z country. I don't think a lot of a lot of Cuban scientists are leading the way in anything. Computer scientists, uh, biologists, chemical engineers, you name it. Rocket scientists. I mean, the rockets the Cubans had, of course, they were buying from the Russians, uh, the Soviets. They should be, uh, the media should be horrifically embarrassed about the way they talk about this. They think that there's some even-handedness. Isn't it fascinating? You have to step back for a second and look at this. This is the same media that during this election, that during this election told us all that Donald Trump was such a threat, was so odious, was such an ogre and a savage, that they would cast off the pretense, even, of objective journalism in an effort to destroy him. And yet, when you look at how they talk about Fidel Castro, an actual tyrant who was not just a threat, but was the destructor, was the person responsible for the annihilation of the Cuban economy, was the person responsible for countless hundreds of thousands of people having their livelihoods destroyed, millions of people living in an economy that doesn't allow them any advancement whatsoever. 
We don't even know the number of casualties from his dungeons and torture chambers and firing squads. How many other people were killed trying to cross from Cuba to Florida on makeshift rafts with their families, perhaps watching a family member drown or die from exposure or get eaten alive by a shark. That's how awesome Cuba was. People would risk their children being eaten in front of their eyes by big fish. That's how horrifying this place was. But the media will say things. A CNN anchor over the weekend said, to some, a bad guy. To others, uh, you know, a liberator of his... No, not to some and to others. This isn't an on the one hand, on the other hand. There's no halfway here. Fascinating, though. With Trump, got to go all in. He's a monster. Destroy him. And they were open about that. This guy's an American, responsible for zero deaths, responsible for the destruction of zero economies. Not actually a tyrant. Hasn't actually done it. I mean, you go through this stuff. And when they talk about Castro, they want it. They nuance. It calls for nuance. An even hand. Taking a middle path. Uh, Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. So Obama, no clarity on this. Uh, Trump, real clarity on Castro. I want to share more with you about this after the break. And we haven't even gotten to Trudeau, who... Wrote, gave this sort of written equivalent of a foot massage to uh, to Castro, and it is just disgusting. And, yeah, Canada's prime minister, we've all known for a while, is an imbecile. But And Canada, I love you guys, but wow. Don't get to make fun of, you don't get to make fun of uh, America for Trump, sorry. That guy is a total, is a buffoon who's good at nothing other than looking into the camera and being Mr. Suave, uh, debonair prime minister man. And falling down the stairs, if you haven't seen that video of him, it tells you a lot. 888-900-3393, more on Castro and more on other very interesting topics when we come back. Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Got Lorenzo calling in from Miami. Lorenzo, welcome to Freedom Hut. Thanks for calling. Hey, Bug. Thank you for having me on. Big fan of your show. Thank you. Um, just wanted to to give you a, a glimpse of what it was like from uh, from Miami when when we found out. Uh, we're about the same age. I, I was born in in the U.S. My parents came over in in the early '60s, and, and all my life and. and and the entire life of, uh, of all my peers, everyone I've grown up with, we've had this shadow uh, hanging over us. Uh, this was the, uh, the guy who ordered uh, our family's businesses confiscated. Uh, our parents had to leave their homeland because of him. Uh, I have relatives that, are, that have been political prisoners in his, in his jail. And it, this was just a, a monster that, you know, we, we kind of are breathing a sigh of relief because he's gone. And maybe not the way that we always envisioned it. You know, some of us wanted to see something like what happened in Romania, wanted something a little bit more glorious, but he's gone. He's gone, and it's, it, you know, many will say that Do you think the system is going to change now? Do you and, think that there'll be an opening, it, it, or is, just, is Raul going to keep it business as usual? Oh, certainly, but don't underestimate the power of symbols. I mean, this was the, the figure. This was uh, the one that did everything, the one that was, you know, supposedly invincible. Um, 
and things things may start to change hopefully you know god willing but i mean definitely joy on the streets of uh of miami uh, and celebrations all weekend i'm i'm so thankful that that my old man got to see this day even though it's not you know the liberty that we all that we all still want that we all need uh but it's it's a step it's a necessary step in that direction i i look i i totally agree with you i'm just wondering what do you what do you think when you hear some of these uh, pundits and, and people on TV trying to suggest that there that you know Castro he's a guy who was complicated but he did he did a lot of good along with the bad? Yeah, for those for his family and those immediately around him, yeah, sure they they've lived pretty well, but there's an island of eleven million that are living under misery. They're living in, in terrible conditions. And, and just, you know, for proof of it, how much coverage are you seeing from inside of Cuba? You're, you're not. You're seeing what's happening on the streets of Miami, and you're seeing a couple of people that, that have been interviewed by CNN. CNN, as you know, has had a, an office there for years, and they've kind of, you know, sold their soul to be able to, to cover this, this event. This is the one they've been waiting for. And now there's, you know, nine days of, of mourning. You know, all, all the establishments are closed. And you know, don't don't be don't be caught dead uh, speaking to the foreign press. Um, so and, and your yeah, your, your father and what was what was the first thing that he said when uh, when you when he broke the news or when he found out? It, it, it's funny because I, I got a call at one a.m. from him, and and he was the one that uh, that had uh, had woken me up because the news arrived kind of late, and he was just happy. He was you know at last. You know, finally, finally, this happened. We, the the day that we had all been waiting for 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 decades. Yeah, the 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 death of a tyrant. Finally, we'll see if it means that Cuba will will begin to uh, turn towards, be able to turn towards freedom and, and away from the tyranny under which it has suffered for so long. Uh, Lorenzo, Miami, great to talk to you. Shields High, thank you for calling in. Uh, yeah, I got to tell you, um, we'll talk more about this. I, I've got more to share on this. Sponsors half hour is Super Beats. Look, if you need some energy, if you're looking for something to help pick you up in the morning, I can tell you that Super Beats are awesome. They've got a patented drying process, so you get all the benefits of beets without any of that funky beet taste. And I'm telling you, if you give it a shot, you see what the taste is like. You just put it in some water. You can put it in sort of your own smoothies, whatever it is you're making at home. Uh, try a little bit of Super Beats in there, and you'll see it gives me great energy. It's a fantastic product. And it's got all sorts of really awesome nitric oxide and other key minerals for your body. So try Superbeats. Go to TeamBuckBeats.com. Again, that is TeamBuckBeats.com. Best place to find it. And you can call in if you want to get a free 30-day supply, 800-311-4367, 800-311-4367. Or go to TeamBuckBeats.com. 30-day free supply. The Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by our friend Charles Cook. He is the editor for National Review Online, also the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. Charles, great to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've got a couple of topics I want to hit. First, uh, breaking news from earlier today about this Ohio State University 
stabbing and uh, stabbing spree. The suspect is dead. My understanding is there are eight people that have been uh, eight people that have been taken to the hospital. I'm sorry, nine people transported to local hospitals, mostly with stab wounds, and some had motor vehicle wounds. So this individual has uh, this individual drove a car around, knocked into people, got out, stabbed them with a butcher knife, and there were calls for gun control on the internet right away. Well, it was initially reported as a shooting. Turns out the only bullets that were fired were fired by a police officer who killed the suspect, who I believe was an 18-year-old Somali refugee. Somewhat changes the story. People are going to start to connect dots. They're going to be told not to connect dots, but a Somali refugee who's 18 years old. Yeah, people are going to start asking questions. Well, I think that's right. Uh, This was a a case of an early freak out. We often see this with uh, breaking news. It's difficult to know what's going on, especially when there is chaos. It is almost always the case uh, that the news reports two or three attackers. It is almost never the case that there are two or three attackers that don't seem to have been here. What we know is, as I say, this was an 18-year-old Somali uh, refugee who had a green card seems to have driven his car into a building at the university, stabbed eight or nine people before being shot. Uh, The gun control call is now saying, well, even though this had nothing to do with guns, we still need gun control because it could have been worse. They're rather clutching at straws. And we'll find out more details about this uh, in the the hours ahead. Of course, people are going to look at this individual who was, I believe, killed at the scene, uh, the suspect killed at the scene, um, but... They're going to look at his online presence. Is there any radicalization? I think that's where the conversation is very quickly going to go and the analysis of this will go. Uh, but we'll put a hold on that for now because all we know is he drove around, ran into people, stabbed them with knives, was reported as a shooting. Immediately people say this is this is why we need gun control. And I, I don't know if we'll see. There are some who actually make a case about knife controls. I don't think they mean to ban knives entirely because that would there, there are problems for cutlery purposes. Um, but there are people who, I mean, New York State, for example, has very, or New York City, I should say, although I don't know what the state laws are, very bizarre laws on knives. Gravity knives are not okay, uh, but, you know, there's a blade. Are you familiar with some of these, Charles? I know it's, it's kind of uh, very specific to the city here, but a blade that's more than three and a half inches, if it's carried on you, the cops can technically arrest you for a concealed weapon, but you can carry around a 12-inch serrated butcher knife and say you're a chef, and that, or a, a chef knife, and say you're a chef, and that's fine. They are complicated. I'm less familiar with them than I am with the laws in England, which are even stricter. In fact, there are groups in England who would like to outlaw sharp knives completely. Uh, indeed, uh, chef's knives are now being sold with flat ends. So Wait, uh, you're, ki- you're kidding them. me. <laughs> There's no, no I'm not. Americans always <laughs> giggle when I explain this. Yeah, I've, no, I've never heard of this. This is amazing. No, there is a, a knife prohibitionist movement in the UK. New York is particularly strict. I'm not one of these people, a Second Amendment advocate as I am, who thinks that in every single situation, if everyone were armed, everyone would be safer. There are certain circumstances in which uh, that isn't the case. But it seems uh, odd in this uh, environment and in this circumstance to argue that were uh, one of the professors or the students armed uh, at OSU, uh, that things would have been worse. Uh, This was somebody who... Uh, clearly wanted to do a a great deal of damage um, and uh, was prepared to die in the process. And he did ultimately need to be stopped by a man with a gun. Uh, And as we've seen over and over again, 
uh, not to disparage police officers. They are, of course, uh, wonderful people, but they can't be everywhere at once. Uh, so I, I, I'm surprised that this has become a, uh, a rallying cry for, for gun control. Uh, Charles, I want to ask for your just gut reaction to Castro's passing over the weekend and also then the reactions that are out there from people whom one might think would know better than to praise Castro or to sort of soft pedal his record, but clearly they don't. Yes, well, it's not red baiting when they come out and say it. And unfortunately, over the last few days, we've learned that there is almost no injustice or tyranny that some on the left, not all, some on the left uh, will refuse to excuse, providing uh, that uh, the regime improved health care and literacy. I keep saying this. Wait, the, uh, can we just say that the literacy improvement we're talking about, Charles, as I know you know, is in the U.S. the literacy rate is 99 percent. The Cuban regime, which is the only they are the only ones who give these statistics, say they're 99.8 or so. It's preposterous. I mean, it's a very small margin of difference. Well, it's preposterous for, for two reasons. Three, and indeed the, the first you mentioned, is that those statistics come from the regime itself. Uh, the two big problems with that argument are that those in Cuba may have been able to read, uh, but what they were allowed to read was extraordinarily limited. Uh, it was essentially government propaganda uh, and or those sources that the government had declined to ban. I would not necessarily praise a regime uh, that teaches its people to read and then locks them in a corner. Uh, and the second point uh, is that regardless of whether the literacy rate was at 90% or 95% or 99.8% or 100%, uh, it is always unacceptable to mass murder your people and lock up your political opposition. Uh, even taking a cold utilitarian look at the country, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't acceptable. It was not morally okay. I don't know in what moral universe, but the people can read, is a, a legitimate counter-argument to this is a one-party dictatorship with a gulag, a one-party dictatorship uh, that prompted the exile of a million people, a one-party dictatorship that killed deliberately thousands of people, that imprisoned hundreds of thousands of people, that tortured hundreds of thousands of people. Who cares how many people could read that, for goodness sake? And when you also look, uh, this is, for me, everything you said, uh, I've been trying to uh, to outline that for everybody, just so we're all very clear on, on the history as we discuss this and the reactions, and I haven't yet read, and I will, Charles, uh, once we let you get back to running National Review online, um, but I'm going to read the Trudeau eulogy, which just spawned, of course, all the parodies and such, because it was so... So stupid and so insipid. Um, but uh, when you when you have somebody like Castro, who it is known at, to anybody who pays attention, at least uh, imprisoned and tortured and, and beat people for the crime of being gay, I would think that given the left's views of protected classes and you know gay uh, wanting gay rights and marriage equality, that this would that alone, that sin alone, as a or really series of, of perpetual or perpetual sins would make him anathema but they i'm i'm always astonished to see people say well yeah i guess that was bad but then they kind of go back to the talking points about it just sort of shows how powerful the oh he gave health care and everybody could read and he was part of this sort of people's revolution thing really is because 
he was a actually a, a hate part of a hateful, bigoted regime as well, which you would think would make him outside or beyond the pale for the left, but it doesn't. And Cuba's constitution still bans gay marriage. Now, I think you're exactly right, and I don't even think it's to do with health care and education. I think part of the appeal is that he loathed the United States. If I might explain that, if you take a, uh, by international standards, thoroughly moderate and mainstream character, say Pat McCrory, the governor, perhaps former governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory is vilified on the left repeatedly uh, for his stance on transgender bathrooms, which is apparently the defining issue of our time. That the economy has grown in North Carolina, that the schools have improved and so forth, is deemed to be irrelevant by Pat McCrory's opponents. He is, because of his stance on bathrooms, uh, an irredeemable bigot, and he has to be removed from office. That clouds over everything. That is uh, the lacuna uh, in his record. There is nothing that can overshadow it. But for Che Guevara, who put gays in camps, we are told, well, that was a, a downside in a nuanced reign. Why? Why in one case uh, is disagreeing with the left uh, on, uh, a, if we're honest, an arcane question of uh, sexuality uh, it? Why is it the end of it all? But in the other case, a far, far worse case, it is overlooked. I think it's because, uh, firstly, progressives are entirely inconsistent and have no North Star. Uh, but secondly, uh, because Shea stood up against the United States and that that is uh, romantic to many people. Yeah, there's an anti-Americanism that that is uh, ap- appealing to much of the left. Uh, the sort of blame America first crowd looks at Castro and sees a champion that stood up to America. They forget that whole part about where he told Khrushchev to use nukes, you know, if it came down to it against the United States. He, that, but in <laughs> that a kind part- way. Yeah, exactly. He, he did it in the nicest imaginable way. Um, and, and I have to say, this is one of these arguments that, that does pop up once in a while where people on the left, including some prominent media figures who, if not pro-Castro, at least take this sort of tepid or middle, middle way when there's really no middle way. This is not an argument they can win. There, nobody can get on TV and make this sort of, well, Castro on balance was a good figure. Not an argument they can ever win. But people put themselves in that position because... The propaganda and I guess the the appeal, the sort of revolutionary uh, mythology behind this figure is so powerful that they forget that they're making idiots of themselves. Well, I'm reminded of the remarks that the Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm made when asked whether it would be worth the death of it was 20 million people in order to bring about successful communism. He said, yes, he said it would be. Uh, there is that trade-off always hanging over these projects, and there are a good number of useful idiots uh, who are prepared to make it, or at least who are prepared to say in public that they would make it. Whether they would when it came to it remains to be seen. I'm not suggesting for one moment that the vast majority of people who identify as left or center-left in the United States think like this. But, but there is, is out there. a small number uh, among... Uh, che Guevara and Fidel Castro and even Stalin's apologists who think that uh, the camps, uh, the extrajudicial executions and so forth were the price that had to be paid, were collateral damage, if you will. It's a terrifying extension uh, of the idea that the ends justify the means, but it does exist. 
Yeah, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that, or at least some some whispers of that in, in the wake of Castro's death here. Charles Cook is editor for National Review Online. He's the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. You should follow him on Twitter at Charles C.W. Cook. Charles, great to have you, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break, and we're going to be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. So I wanted to borrow from a brilliant professor at Yale University by the name of Carlos uh, Ayer, who wrote, uh, and Reuters was uh, one of the places to pick this up, who wrote his sort of obituary or his editorial on the death of Castro. And um, he really gets right to it. He says, he writes, One of the most brutal dictators in modern history has just died. Oddly enough, some will mourn his passing. And many in obituary will praise him. Millions of Cubans who have been waiting impatiently for this moment for more than half a century will simply ponder his crimes and recall the pain and suffering he caused. Why this discrepancy? Because deceit was one of Fidel Castro's greatest talents and gullibility is one of the world's greatest frailties. A genius at mythmaking, Castro relied on the human thirst for myths and heroes. His lies were beautiful and so appealing. Um, so there you have this professor taking Castro task, and this is how you have this nonsense from people about him. Um, but he shares at the bottom of this editorial 13 facts that he says should be etched on Castro's tombstone and highlighted in every obituary. And he, I just wanted to share these with you from Professor Ayer at Yale. He turned Cuba into a colony of the Soviet Union and nearly caused a nuclear holocaust. He sponsored terrorism wherever he could and allied himself with many of the worst dictators on Earth. He was responsible for so many thousands of executions and disappearances in Cuba that a precise number is hard to reckon. He brooked no dissent and built concentration camps and prisons at an unprecedented rate, filling them to capacity, incarcerating at a higher percentage of his own people than most other modern dictators, including Stalin. He condoned and encouraged torture and extrajudicial killings. He forced nearly 20 percent of his people into exile and prompted thousands to meet their deaths at sea, unseen and uncounted, while flying, uh, fleeing from him in crude vessels. He claimed all property for himself and his henchmen, strangled food production, and impoverished the vast majority of his people. He outlawed private enterprise and labor unions, wiped out Cuba's large middle class, and turned Cubans into slaves of the state. He persecuted gay people and tried to eradicate religion. He censored all means of expression and communication. He established a fraudulent school system that provided indoctrination rather than education and created a two-tier health care system with inferior care for a majority of Cubans and superior care for himself and his oligarchy. He turned Cuba into a labyrinth of ruins and established an apartheid society in which millions of foreign visitors never enjoyed rights and privileges forbidden to his people. He never apologized for any of his crimes, and he never stood trial for any of them. That is really all you need in terms of a eulogy for Castro. That's really all you need to read on his tombstone to understand who this man was. And it's all you need to know in order to fully grasp the idiocy of those on the American left and in the media and in academia who somehow embrace this person 
or even in the case of Obama, refused to speak openly and honestly about the extent of his crimes. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome to hour three. Time for a buck brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the buck brief. Rowan Scarborough is a national security writer for the Washington Times. He joins now. Rowan, great to have you. Hey, good to be with you. All right, we want to talk about some of your most recent pieces here. First, Iran positioning Shiite militias in Iraq as a regional expeditionary force. What's going on? Well, that's one of the more troubling developments uh, in Iraq the last two years as we're trying to expel uh, ISIL from that country and eventually from Syria. Uh, During those two years, Iran has been able to create what is essentially four divisions of light infantry troops that they have equipped and are now guiding. Most of them are in the uh, area of Mosul during the liberation of that city, uh, west of the city toward toward the Syrian border. And Iran's objectives are pretty clear. They want to have a permanent uh, occupying army in Iraq with the blessings of Baghdad which they can then use to uh, send troops into Syria when Assad uh, gets in trouble there or when they want to mount an attack, say, on Aleppo, and also use it as a staging area to go into Yemen uh, if if that becomes necessary to to hold their interest there. So it it means long-term, Buck, that uh, Iran is going to have an occupying force in Iraq with the blessings of uh, Baghdad, and they'll be they'll be able to use it to counter uh, American influence in Syria, American influence in Lebanon and other places in the world. And it just it it says to me that post uh, President Obama nuclear deal, uh, Iran is getting larger, not smaller. It's becoming more influential, not less influential. And it has the money now to to uh, to pay the Iraqis, to pay its own people and to continue its expansion uh, strategy for the, for the region. Now, tell me about this other piece you have up on WashingtonTimes.com. Trump is inheriting a, quote, weak army, a military too small to win major wars, according to a report. What's this report, and what do you make of it? Well, it's from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, every year for the last three years, they, they uh, act like uh, uh, teachers in school grading their students. And in this case, they're grading uh, the four branches of the military plus our nuclear force, and they, they are consistently giving our military a lower grade when it comes to the ability to carry out a major overriding strategy of fighting two big wars almost simultaneously. So they've, they've graded the armed forces overall as marginal in their ability to do that, and our largest land force, the Army, has been graded as weak. And essentially this is because 
President Obama is going to be leaving a military that is smaller uh, and that is older and that is in need of repair, whether it's aircraft or vehicles. And I think that this, this report is one of the major documents that has influenced President-elect Donald Trump and his uh, goal for the, defense, uh, for the Defense Department, which is for a larger army, a larger navy, a larger air force, and in his view, a more modernized uh, operation. So instead of 270 ships that we have now, he wants to have 350 ships that are available uh, to fight two major wars. Instead of 450,000 soldiers, his goal now is 540,000 soldiers. So this report is sort of the underpinning for what he wants to do. Uh, one of the first uh, priorities in the 100 days that he's going to tackle. And we'll, we'll see if he does it. He's vowed to do it. Uh, he's put it in writing in his uh, uh, 100 days uh, strategy. So I would look at this report and sort of grade his performance in Congress the first year to see if he gets these things done. And your third piece here on WashingtonTimes.com that I wanted to bring up is General Kelly's hawkish testimony on border security attracts interest for Trump cabinet post. Tell everybody about General Kelly and what's he been saying on the border. And uh, Trump is attracted to generals. I think I think that's become clear to all of us. He sort of he sees himself as a businessman general, someone who commands troops to go out and build things. And he's he's impressed uh, by four star officers. He likes the Marine Corps, James Mattis. He likes the Army's uh, Petraeus. He likes the uh, he likes the Army's former DIA director. And now enter the picture is John Kelly, who uh, is another four-star retired Marine. He used to run Southern Command, which, uh, which is based in Florida. Part of Southern Command's uh, portfolio is our southern border with Mexico. And he is very hawkish on the need to shore up that border, uh, not necessarily with a wall, but to shore it up uh, by other means because he sees it as a national security issue not just a social issue or economic issue. Uh, he knows the terrain in Latin America. He knows that Hezbollah, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, is more active. Uh, he knows that criminal smuggling rings are getting larger, and they don't really differentiate uh, as to whether they're smuggling Latinos into our country or smuggling in potential terrorists. So this is his point of view. Uh, it, it, he gave testimony in 2000. 15 to the Senate Armed Services Committee, where he laid out the national security threat of our porous southern border. And this is what has attracted him to uh, uh, Trumpsters, uh, such as uh, Bannon, his Steve Bannon, one of his top advisors. And this got him an invite to the New Jersey Country Club last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, where they, they talked for about two hours, primarily about Latin America and the southern border and how we can make things better. General Kelly also believes there's a big economic uh, dimension to this in, in Central America, that we need to get those countries free of their violent uh, criminal gangs and on a, on, on a path of economic expansion. So, so many of these families don't want to make the horrible journey with smugglers to our borders and come into our country. So he, he sees different types of policies that need to be implemented uh, to make our border more secure. And that's why Trump is attracted to the guy. Rowan Scarborough is national security writer for The Washington Times. You can follow him on Twitter at Row Scarborough. Uh, Rowan, great to have you. Thanks uh, very much for joining.
All right, Buck. Thank you. John, give me the Buck Brief close. You are leaving a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times. Perfect transition, I think, from the Buck Brief to our sponsor this half hour, silencershop.com. Look, if you're in the market for a suppressor, if you want to get a silencer for your firearm, silencershop.com offers the best buying experience, period. Their staff is friendly. They know uh, they know what they are doing in this business very much. They're knowledgeable. Uh, they know their entire uh, catalog, backwards and forwards. They're very available to help and answer any questions. And customers can trust that Sounds Shop will handle the process quickly and correctly because they submit more forms than anybody else in the country by a huge margin. Now, Silencer is a must-have accessory for your firearm. I've fired lots with a Silencer. It's much more fun. It's great not to have to wear Ear Pro when you're out there on the range. Uh, I just think it's a more enjoyable experience all around. It's easier to talk to people around you, and you're just going to like it. So check it out. Uh, the best thing to do is to go to silencershop.com. You can learn more about all the products there and also the process of getting a silencer. Again, silencershop.com, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. And team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Just a quick breaking news item. It's not really breaking news in the, like, ooh, breaking news, but it's just something that popped up. General Petraeus has entered Trump Tower, according to the press pool, and I suppose this is so he can have a discussion about possibly working for the Trump administration. I gotta say, uh, Petraeus got off really light with the whole giving classified information to his mistress thing. Uh, he lied to the FBI, which this was in the sworn down. I mean, this is in the court records. Lied to the FBI, which alone can carry up to a five-year federal prison sentence. Usually you don't get the full five, although sometimes it depends. Um, he lied to the FBI. He mishandled classified. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor. Uh, and look, I, he, he, he faced justice. He did sort of pay th- pay a price. I think it was a much gentler price because he was CIA director than other people would have. And certainly the uh, deputy uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is facing prison time for lying to the FBI about a leak-related matter, um, I think he would be very curious to know why is it that lying to the FBI for Petraeus just get, gets kind of pushed aside in the plea bargain. But remember, the, the, general, uh, the general who's facing charges... For that leak situation, I think uh, I think is a General Cartwright. I'm forgetting his name. Um, he is only yeah General uh, General Cartwright. He is only being charged with lying to the FBI. He's not being charged with leaking anything. So okay, uh, Petraeus as a pick for no. There are others. How about Odierno? I mean, there are other picks that I would go with. If we're gonna if we're gonna start picking generals, I don't think you go with the general who. Like the, the personal life stuff is not really, uh, you know, he cheated on his wife. He also slept with a married woman who had children. It's pretty disgusting. We're really going to talk about it. But 
we're looking at this more for whether he's effective and whether that might save lives if he were to be, say, a senior defense official in some capacity, again, having been a uh, CIA director and also a four-star general. But, yeah, I don't think I don't think that's a choice that I would make. There have been a few, and I'm going to withhold some judgment on some of them because, well, let's see how they do. There are a few Trump picks for the cabinet that I'm like, hmm? Really? There's some others. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But some of them, I'm a little like, doesn't make sense to me. All right. I promise you Trudeau eulogies for Castro. This was the hash. This was like the trending thing on Twitter over the weekend. Um, It was I was sort of sitting there reading through it. And uh, here's what we we had. uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issued this statement uh, following the death of Cuban President Fidel Castro. I don't think we should call him president, but I guess technically that's the title that he took for himself. All right. Quote, it is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's longest serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger than life leader who served his people for almost half a century. A legendary revolutionary and orator. Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. While a controversial figure... Both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognize his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. End quote. You have got to be kidding me. It's the prime minister of Canada, a, a developed and developed country, close ally. And I, I don't have to tell you about Canada. You know what I'm saying? We're just This is crazy, right? I mean, this guy, this isn't like the, the mayor of Secaucus, New Jersey, weighing in on this. No offense, Secaucus. You're cool. This is the prime minister of an important U.S. ally and a country that is closer to our own in many ways in temperament and, and everything else than probably any other country in the world. And wow, a deep and lasting affection for Castro. This is what this guy says. Uh, he's he's got to be kidding me, right? Uh, this is First of all, how would we even know? Because they're not allowed to express any public opinions on politics or their circumstances or anything else for that matter. So just like with their literacy rating of 99.8%, what about that 0.2%, huh? And why is it 100? This is the problem that dictators always have, by the way, when they give you the fake numbers to support their nonsense, lies, and mythology. It's like, well, 90, you know, if, uh, you know, what is it? Um, I can never get these guys straight. Some of the, the Kazakh, uh, the Kazakh despot, was it Nusultan, Nusurbayev or something? I forget it. I, I get my various autocrats in the stands twisted sometimes in my head because you know whatever um but i love it when they have you know an election and 90 percent vote for him you know nazarbayev or whoever it is gets 90 percent of the vote who are the other who are the other nine or ten percent you know what's what's going on there why not 95 percent how do they pick the number i always kind of wonder about that you know, did somebody get fired was it supposed to be 99 percent with the one percent being a sort of margin of error or you know no comment uh, so their 99.8% literacy rate thing is kind of funny. But Castro, to get this kind of eulogy from the Prime Minister of Canada, I mean, the amount of scorn, deservedly so, heaped upon Trudeau as a result of this eulogy was epic, was amazing. And it, and I wanted to share this with you just so that we could indulge in some of the Hashtag Trudeau eulogies that were written over the weekend. This became a thing. This became a meme that you that you could sort of create this. Well, you'll see what a Trudeau eulogy is because I'll read some of my favorites. 
Uh, these are picked off of Twitter over the weekend. This one from uh, account Liars Never Win. Bin Laden was a charismatic leader who helped revolutionize airport security in his lifetime. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Uh, the uh, pretty brilliant writer up at the Council on Foreign Relations, I actually knew him when I was an intern there, uh, Walter Russell Mead writes, uh, Benedict Arnold, a hero whose loyalties were too wide to be confined within the narrow boundaries of a single cause. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Uh, Kurt Schlichter, with his innovative urban renewal program, Pol Pot bravely confronted the pressing challenge of overpopulation. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Our buddy John Schindler at 20 Committee on Twitter. I'm sure he'll be joining us later in the week so we can have some spy time. There were controversies, as with every full life. But above all, Adolf Eichmann taught us the importance of planning. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Uh, and then this account Curtis had, quote, Today we mourn painter and animal rights activist Adolf Hitler. His death also highlights the need for suicide awareness. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies so you get the idea this spawned its own set of memes and commentary and it's just a perfect example of of the idiot left at work that somebody like trudeau could be the prime minister i mean can i know a lot of my canadian friends are embarrassed but wow this guy uh really stepped in it with this it wasn't even he didn't even go the obama route obama can defend what he said as i'm not saying I, I don't think it's defensible, but at least he can mount a defense of it by saying things like, you know, why uh, try to exacerbate relations now? And I didn't, you know, I didn't mention his crimes, but I didn't excuse them and I didn't have warm. I mean, it was bad. Don't get me wrong. But Trudeau is just crazy. Trudeau is talking about the warmth and affection the Cuban people have for Castro. So uh, there is that. And now I'm just just to throw this in because I, I feel like it. Um, I told you that we would talk a bit about Jill Stein's uh, platform, Jill Stein of the Green Party. For those of you who wonder, is totalitarianism something that only exists in other countries? You know, could we could we have a surge in totalitarian uh, ideology here? What would it look like? Well, I have to tell you that the, the hardcore Greens, the real deal Green and the Green Party people, when you start to dig into a bit, we've got Castro passing, and, and he destroyed his economy based on, well, a lot of things. But part of it was, of course, this notion that the revolution was the most important thing. And anybody who didn't go along with it, anybody who was a, quote, counter-revolutionary was a problem. And the, the issues that arose in the economy and the poverty and the misery, that was all a sort of necessary process for the glory of the revolution. Um, but then you you look at Jill Stein and her platform. I know people are going to say, Buck, this isn't fair. Jill Stein's on a tyrant or whatever. Okay. Hold on. She has number one, climate action, protecting Mother Earth. She actually has that on her website. And her top issue is to enact an emergency Green New Deal to turn the tide on climate change, revive the economy, and make wars for oil obsolete. Initiate a World War II scale national mobilization to halt climate change, the greatest threat to humanity in our history. Uh, this is, if she were to actually do this, she would destroy the U.S. economy. I mean, she could Cubaize in a sense. Not that she's ever going to win anything or become powerful, but I'm just saying, if we, if we we have somebody running who's now claiming that she needs a recount because whatever, if she had her way. There would be a destruction of the U.S. economy that would sort of mirror, in terms of the severity, I think, the 
destruction of the Cuban economy. I mean, it would just be a complete disaster if we did this emergency green New Deal. Basically, like cold turkey, get off of fossil fuels tomorrow. It's insane. And it's authoritarian. We've got more. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He was born in Cuba and left at the age of 12. Mike, great to have you. Buck, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, so we've talked a bit about the reaction to Castro today on the show and sort of the, the media back and forth or the, the pundit and, and commentary back and forth over the various eulogies, uh, whether in Trudeau style or more Trumpian in, in nature. I want to ask you about what now, uh, what happens now that Castro is dead? What is the future for Cuba? Uh, what does it look like and what do you think could be done to make it look better? Well, w- one reason why it is important to keep talking about how awful Castro was, how much it destroyed Cuba, how much his ideology, how, how destructive his ideology was, and how he suppressed uh, millions of people. It's not because we want to revel in the past. But we want to prevent his nephew, Alejandro Castro Espin, the son of Raul Castro, from taking the reins of power, or anybody associated with the Castros, really. We, we don't want to have a communist dynasty or any kind of communism 90 miles from our border. We want to have a stable, free, democratic regime that is not an emitter of chaos, uh, refugees on, on rats, or anything of that sort. We want a good ally. And so, so in order to get that... Uh, we need to speak constantly about what communism has done, what the Castro family has done, and, and, and then remind the world, or actually tell the world for the first time, that everything that has happened uh, in the first two years of the Obama changes has only benefited those people, has only benefited the regime, has only benefited the people around Castro and not the Cuban people. Uh, so anything that we do, whatever we do, and it looks like uh, President-elect Trump is off to a good start, with his statements, uh, to empower the Cuban people and not the flunkies at the top would be the, a good thing. What, what does that look like, though? I mean, you have a piece up on the Daily Signal, Fidel Castro's death is an opportunity to end Cuba's communist dynasty. Let's end this dynasty. What do we do, what do, we do now? If you were sitting down, uh, I would have to say it, if you were sitting in Trump Tower and speaking to the president-elect and his national security team, such as it is right now, I know it's still being assembled, what would you want them to have in mind as next steps post uh, fo- post Fidel Castro? Uh, how long do I have? I mean, uh, let, let's start with the very top thing, which is to return uh, to a policy of supporting Cuba's uh, pro-democracy freedom fighters, right? That is the main thing. Return to a, a, a policy of moral clarity. Uh, of, uh, of, of, of This is what, what Reagan knew, that speaking on behalf of the Soviet dissidents, uh, was very important in, in calling out the Soviet regime and saying it was an evil empire. It was a very powerful thing. The Soviet dissident, Natan Sharansky, knew this. He wrote about it afterward. He said he had been in the gulag when when uh, President uh, Reagan said, called the Soviet Union an evil empire. 
and uh, and he said that they they were all warmed by that. They all they were all encouraged by that. So we need to return to that, right? We need to. It's time for President-elect Trump to have a General Castro set your people free moment. Uh, maybe a speech in Miami. Send a direct regime that the the on one hand and on the other. Uh, approach of Barack Obama is going to come to a screeching halt. The next time a dissident is in town, invite him to the White House, make a big deal out of that. That is very powerful to begin with, okay? Uh, then you can have uh, uh, things like the unilateral concessions. Uh, uh, we These are the Obama-specific moves that were taken. I mean, the Obama-specific yeah. moves taken yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's like 50-odd 50, 50 executive orders uh, that can be rescinded just as easily as they were signed. Uh, Trump can sit down and within the space of 15 minutes rescind every order that Obama has signed with regards to Cuba. For example, uh, he can reinstate the prohibition against remittances to the Cuban uh, government uh, state officials or even to the Cuban people. Every From, from a policy uh, perspective, uh, remittances are a very bad idea. They're very bad for people in this country. Cuban Americans should be investing in the human capital and social capital of their communities, investing in sending their daughter to college and not sending money to Cuba. And Cubans in, in Cuba should not become words of their relatives in Miami. So so cutting off the remittances would also have the, the positive impact of denying the regime uh, uh, hard cash, uh, hard money, real money. Um, that negotiate compensation for stolen American property and assets. Uh, the, the theft of American uh, property, about two million, two billion dollars worth, is one of the highest. Uh, I think it's the biggest uh, theft of private property in American history. And the commercial flights, and 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 and, and one of the, the one of the the first presidential directive that must be rescinded was the one that ordered the U.S. Director of National Intelligence to cooperate with the Cuban counterparts. Uh, I mean, these are KGB trained people. These are people who are very anti-American. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we can do along this path to go in the right direction. And I must say that I'm very encouraged. Yeah, I was going to ask, how how bright do you think the future is for Cuba now that the original tyrant, I know there's still sort of little underling tyrants still around, including Raul, but now that the original tyrant has, has expired, do you think that Cuba is, is on the path towards freedom, even if it's going to be quite a bit uh, before it actually gets there? Well, my approach to everything, including Cuba, is to be pessimistic but hopeful. Uh, you know, we I hope that President-elect Trump and, and President Trump, after January 20th, takes the right steps that I have been outlining for you. Uh, I don't think that the death of Fidel Castro by itself uh, changes anything on the ground. What it does do it, it that it moves the Cuba policy more up front and center for President Trump. Uh, you know, this this would be low-hanging fruit for him, low-hanging fruit for him to tell the people at the Cuba desk at the State Department, what we want is regime change. If you work here, you must find the Cuban government, uh, the Cuban regime offensive, and you must want to change it. Uh, we're going to try to stop trying to, uh, we're going to prevent, do everything we can to prevent a communist dynasty or any kind of communism 90 miles from our border. We want a, a, a stable free and, and capitalist democratic regime, a democratic government that is elected, that has legitimacy. So, so yes, I'm hopeful that these things can be done. Um, the Cuban vote was very powerful. The Cuban-American vote in Florida was very powerful in, in electing uh, Donald Trump to the presidency. 
when he changed his mind and he he became a, a an active uh, opponent of President Obama's policies, there was a 20% change that amounted to hundreds of thousands of votes in Florida. So I think I'm hopeful that this will translate into into policies that are very good for the United States, because it is in our national interest not to have a communist government. Uh, right outside our border, uh, right outside our coast, and it, then it would be for, good for the Cuban people too because it would free them eventually from the yoke that they're living under. Have you been at all surprised? I, I know this is something that you've been following a long time and, it, and is also a, an issue of personal resonance for you. Have you been surprised at some of the stupidity on display from the media when they're talking about Castro? You know... Let me divide it into, you cannot, a lot of the, the media is very young, and you cannot hold people responsible for things they were, ne- they were never taught. And our, our, our colleges and universities, as you know, I don't need to tell you, the faculty lounges people by very leftist professors who, who do not teach reality. Uh, so, so a lot of journalists don't know whereof they speak. They've been taught that, that Castro and the Cuban regime wanted social justice and, and inequality. Uh, there are some people who... And this reveals what's worst in the leftist mind, that what you and I have always been uh, uh, told and suspected that was in the leftist mind, that all the things they said about uh, uh, about so their, their desire for social justice or their desire uh, for egalitarianism was all a lie. And what they really after is raw power, raw power for the, for the will to power that Lenin was famous for. Uh, that does not... But, in that group, I put a very select group, by no means the large number of people who, through sheer ignorance, are, are supporting or eulogizing the dead dictator. So it seems to me that uh, some of it is then, or it seems to you, I should say, and, and I would tend to agree, that some of this is driven just by, by sheer ignorance. Because as I, I had uh, Charles Cook of National Review on before, and I said to him that in this day and age, you could have somebody who – there's I've, I don't hear anyone saying this is not true – um, but was specifically for the left persecuting uh, gays, putting them in camps, beating and torturing them. One would think that that would be enough on its own, absent everything else, the destruction of Cuba's economy, the enslavement of its people, that that would make him a sort of odious and hated figure on the left. And no, they give him a total pass. Well, uh, here's the thing is that the Castro, uh, although the Cuban people themselves uh, are not allowed any access to outside media, the regime does have access. To one of the, so one of the things they have done over the last 10 years is uh, uh, Raul Castro's daughter, Mariela, has a very good antenna. She's a, an awful person, a communist, and wants to continue the family uh, rule over Cuba and suppress the Cuban people. But she understands how powerful a message uh, that uh, the, the, the LGBT issue was. So she actually forced her father to change. And now gays... Uh, are not put in prison camps anymore, are not excluded from society, uh, but there has been more of an embrace. Uh, that is completely cosmetic, and only because Mariella understands that the regime needs to continue to have the support of of, of the left outside of Cuba's borders. It does show you how that there is a recognition of the resonance of that specific issue on the left, but still the fact that they had to change that policy, as you said, what, 10 years ago? I mean, this is... <laughs> This, this on, on its own should be enough to completely repudiate Cat, but it's not. No, 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 but that's not how the left is. That's the thing, is that to them, 
There's such a thing. There's such a thing as a good dictator. Now I'm a conservative, and you will never hear me say what a good chap General Galtieri was. You know, the late ridiculous Argentine dictator of the of the 80s. Uh, no, he suppressed the Argentines. He was a dictator. He denied people human rights. Uh, so, but but it's baffling that too many people on the left there are such things as good dictators. Don't forget, don't forget that even at the height of the terror. There were American intellectuals who supported Stalin. There were, what was it, Walter Durante of, the, I believe it was the New York Times, pretended that the oh, famine yeah, in no, Ukraine and, wasn't and, even and happening. And right? and a whole bunch of people. Yeah, they, they, they just completely whitewashed the whole thing. It's astonishing. Well, let's be hopeful for the, the future of, of Cuba and the Cuban people. Uh, Mike Gonzalez is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You can read his stuff on DailySignal.com. Mike, great to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, team, going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, I have a feeling this is going to turn into one of these, oh, let's pretend that we have no ability to use our faculties, our, our, our reasoning ability, uh, to try to figure out wh- what the truth behind this uh, Ohio State University stabbing spree. We don't really have names for what we call it when someone tries to mow people down with a car, but uh, stat- car and knife attack that happened. Uh, where this individual clearly was trying to kill as many people as possible. Amazing to me, although I don't know the extent of the injuries. There's only one that's in critical condition, but that nobody was killed in this uh, seems to me to just be uh, incredible luck, although I know to talk about luck when there are people who are in the hospital and who are traumatized by all this seems seems quite uh, strange, but that they're not dead, that it doesn't seem that anyone has been killed except for the assailant himself. Daily Mail here has some uh, updates on this, and they're saying that it was a Somali refugee student. I've seen other uh, elsewhere, and this is the problem with relying on any sort of social media commentary for these breaking news events, that he's actually not Somali. But uh, this is what uh, this is what the biggest news outlets that I can see right now are all reporting that the Ohio State University attack involved this. Um, that he was Somali. I mean, Fox News is saying Somali. Let's let's just go with that for now until I have reasonably otherwise. That he used a butcher knife. It's a reminder that those who want to engage in terrorism will find the means to do so. Of course, I mentioned with Charles Cook on before that the knee-jerk reactionary response to this immediately was, oh, well, this is a gun control issue because they heard the police firing at this, at this terrorist and, and killing him on campus. But uh, whether it's knife attacks, which have been done in in many previous, uh, including some very high-profile attacks. You had that priest who was beheaded on video in France. You had that soldier who was, I I believe, beheaded as well, but certainly stabbed to death on a street uh, in London, or was it London? I know it was in the UK. Um, Knife attacks have been used by the Palestinians for a long time, and there was a surge in them, I think, about 12 months ago uh, against Israelis. So they just carry a knife, and they find some unsuspecting person in the street, and they try to stab them to death right there. And as we've seen from what happened in Nice in southern France uh, earlier this year, a vehicle can be 
in its own way, a sort of weapon of mass destruction that can, can be a mass casualty attack instrument. So it's the terrorist that's the problem. The specific weapon or the specific methodology of the terrorist attack, whether it's a bomb, a knife, a car, or a gun, is much less or should be much less of a focus, a policy focus, than what to do about this. If it is true that this is a refuge, that this student is a refugee, and that this is somebody that the United States, out of its goodness, out of its kindness, sheltered from an otherwise cold and cruel world, you can imagine that there will be very soon discussions again about Trump's, quote, not Muslim ban, although now we've realized the policy has been changed to be a limitation on immigrants from certain terror-prone countries, and also his concerns about the refugee program. If one out of 10,000 refugees turns into a terrorist incident, I think a lot of the American people would say, well, we've got to find somewhere else for those 10,000 refugees to go. I'm, I'd like to see the polling on it, but that would be my guess. And incidents like this at Ohio State University just feed into that narrative even more. So we'll see if uh, this, as we get more details on this, I'll bring you up to speed certainly tomorrow. Uh, team, that's it for today. Thank you, as always, for joining me here in the Freedom Hunt. Download the show, especially if you just caught a piece of it today or you missed a piece of it. iTunes, SoundCloud.com, or TheBlaze.com slash Buck-Sexton. Until tomorrow, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.